All right, I've been promising it, been teasing about it. Today I'm going to tell you, if I believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale, here's the tickler. No. Let's read the story and give me a chance to explain myself. Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish." Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea. He replied, And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so before we really get into the actual sermon, which is about the downward spiral that Noah takes. Did I say Noah again? Lou did it once too. Did you notice Lou did it as well? Yeah. (laughs) I'll get it right. Jonah. If I say Noah, just say Jonah out loud. That way I'll know you're listening. All right, good. So Noah's in the water and... Hey! (laughs) This is about Jonah's downward spiral to rock bottom, and that's what we're really going to talk about. But before we do, let me address this question of Jonah and the whale, and let me try to put it on the plane of dialogue that I believe it should be on. You see, we've turned it into trying to prove whether or not there's an animal out there someplace that can hold a human being and keep them alive for three days. 
And we can do research, supposedly down in Groton at the Mystic Seaport. There's a story of a guy that was in a whale for a while, but I did some research on that. It's actually not substantiated. And as Christians, when we take an event in Scripture that is rooted in the supernatural work of God and try to explain it by the natural creation, we actually set ourselves up to fail before the world. We do this all the time. We try to prove what we're supposed to take by faith. Let me tell you what this actually says. Verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Each of those words in Hebrew paints a very important picture for us. And the first word is the word provided. In Hebrew, it's wayman, and it means appointed or prepared. Whatever this was, this great creature that God provided, it was prepared for this moment. And then we go on and we see the word fish. There's no mention of the word whale. If we translate Jesus' word, when he talks about this event, Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days, but both the Greek and the Hebrew word speak about that category of living creature that is in the sea as opposed to the land or the air. So God appointed a sea creature of some form, and then the word great, gadon, means actually greater or exceedingly or extremely, or here's a better one, spacious. The last word to look at needs no translation, to swallow. So here's the picture. Believing that God is God and He can do what He wants, when He wants. Same God that brought everything into being same God that can suspend the natural law in order to raise men from the dead, the same God who by our faith took on human flesh and dwelt for a while among us, lived a perfect life and died and was in the tomb buried and whose spirit visited the place of the dead, the same God that raised Christ from the dead. According to this book, prepared, appointed a great fish, a spacious fish for the singular purpose of swallowing Jonah. That's the story. This whole experience has the hand of the supernatural in it from start to end. Everything that happens, even the storm, although storms are a natural occurrence, this storm is a supernatural occurrence. God brings the storm and God ends the storm. So we're meant to read this as the writer carries us along to understand this whole thing that's happening is God supernaturally invading the natural world in order to bring Jonah back to himself, in order to teach Jonah about his grace, not only for him, but for the Ninevites. They cast lots. We think of that as chance, but God supernaturally directs the casting of the lot, so they point on Jonah. And then Jonah's tossed over, and God supernaturally appoints a fish. And that's all we have to believe. That's all we need to understand to get this story. So that being the case, the real question that we need to be asking as people of faith is, could God do that? Not, well, that doesn't make sense to me that God would do that. 
you have to really ask yourself, could he do it? Because if you can't say that, then you're revealing your atheism. You're revealing your struggle to believe that there is a God who created everything, who created the natural order, and suspends it at his will and purpose. And if you can't believe that, then really everything falls apart, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that you have to specifically take this story of Jonah the way I'm interpreting it. What I'm saying is you need to be able to say God can do whatever God wants to do. Do you understand my point? That says something really important about the nature of your faith and what you expect and can believe God could do for you. Does that make sense? You're welcome to disagree with me. You've probably been wrong before, so let's just move on. (laughs) All right. What we're meant to see by this is the supernatural salvation of God so that we can believe that He can save us as well. But we have to see how Jonah gets to this point where he finally turns to God and he's able to get his life straightened up. One of the things that the author of Jonah does is intentionally create this linguistic path, this downward spiral. You see in verse 3, rather than obeying God, he goes down to Joppa, down to the ship, to the sea. And when he's in the ship, he goes down inside the ship where he's hiding and then down into the ocean. And from there, he goes down into the great fish. This is a path towards desperation to rock bottom. I want to just quickly take you through five things that are the result of our disobeying God. They're all D's. I I don't alliterate too often. It just happened to work out this way today. The first is direction. When we run from God and we disobey God, we are moving away from God's plan for our life. Lou did a great job in week two talking about what the nature of disobedience is. And he asked you this question, what is your Tarshish? What is it that you run to when you're avoiding what you know God wants you to do? There is no neutral in your Christian faith. You're either working towards God or you're falling back from God. When I don't follow God, when I disobey God, I'm stepping off of his plan for my life. That's the first, direction. Second is distance, distance from God. Now, we're going to learn at the end of this that, of course, even as far as Jonah could run, he finds God there anyway. (laughs) But distance from God definitely occurs in terms of the relationship that we were meant to have from God. Our relationship with God is impacted. Isaiah 59, 2. You hear me quote this quite often when I share the gospel, but did you know that this verse was written to God's children, Israel, when he says, your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to turn my face from you so that I cannot hear. So let me get right down to it. A third of you in this room are addicted to pornography. Might even be higher than that. You have one life in front of your computer screen or on your iPhone or your pad. You have one life there. Then you turn it off and compartmentalize it and do your religious thing. You can't. Your sins have put a separation between you and your God. 
So if you think you're getting everything you're meant to get out of your faith and you're living in a life of disobedience, then you have no idea of the wasteland you're in spiritually compared to what God has for you. Disobedience draws us away from God. And it's not just that one issue. That's a big one because its availability is like never before. You know, my first uh, look at women <laughs> when I was a kid and coming of age and curious was the Sears and Roebuck catalog. That's what we had. You even know what the Sears and Roebuck catalog is? <laughs> I saw these two young adults go, what is that? But now the availability is so huge. It's why it's an issue that I'm choosing to point out today. Things like that, they become so pervasive. And our access to them makes it so easy. And we get so comfortable being involved in those things that we don't pay any attention to the fact that we're shutting off God's presence and work in our life. And if you're not feeling it, oh, man. That should help you understand something serious is going on in your life, in your faith. The third area is difficult circumstances. Now, I don't mean to suggest that life just isn't full of difficult circumstances. We know it is. Romans 8 says no matter how rough life gets, none of it separates us from God's love, but it does admit that we face really hard times. But there is that difficulty that comes out of disobedience that's unique. Now, I'm not really taking time to point all this out in Jonah, but let's just talk about it just quickly. Direction. Of course, Jonah runs completely opposite from where God's plan is for him. Distance. He's in the hole, in the storm of his life, ready to perish, and he's not even calling out to God. He knows he's running, so there's no relationship with God. And look at his circumstances. They go from bad to worse to worse, right? He goes from uh, in the boat to in deep to indigestion. You know, it just keeps getting worse and worse. How many of you know people that seem to be in this cycle and they see themselves as victim of their circumstances and you're watching them one bad decision after another after another and it's all fruit of the disobedience from God that has separated them from God therefore they're not hearing the voice of God they don't have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide them and they're making worse and worse and worse decisions. How many of you know people like that? Some of you are in that pattern right now and are either in denial or are sitting there knowing I'm talking about you. And it's just going to get worse because that's what happens to Jonah. Uh, the decisions get worse for Jonah from bad to worse. And that happens with all of us. I've already hit on that really just now. And that brings us to point five. Ultimately, if we stay on course in our disobedience, there is always disaster at the end. There's disaster waiting for us at the end. Let me take you to James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. I'd like you to say this with me, good and strong today. Each person is tempted when by their own evil desire they are carried away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, James does something very interesting here. He uses the imagery of reproduction to talk about the path of disobedience and sin. We see it in Jonah as this journey from 
the northern kingdom, to Joppa, to the ship, to the sea, to the belly of the great fish. James begins by saying, when we are tempted, it's not God. God himself isn't tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt anyone with evil. So we are tempted by our broken desires. Inside us, that passion, that lust, conceives and gives birth to action. So it goes from contemplation and desire to action. Gives birth to sin. But then it goes on. The reproduction isn't finished. That's just the birthing of sin. Sin has its own legacy. It says when sin is fully mature, in other words, as that path of disobedience moves us farther and farther into the grasps of sin, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth or gives birth to death. The point that James is making, and it's not up there, but write it down. Disobedience takes on a life of its own, starts in the heart, births into action, and then as that action continues, it brings forth death. Now, the ultimate death, of course, is the death of our soul, and that's the result of all of our sin. We are all dead in our trespasses and sin, and coming to Christ is spoken about coming back to life spiritually, new life, eternal life. But the principle also holds in miniature. Even if we are Christians, we are saved and we have escaped that eternal death, your sin still produces death in your life. What do you mean, Tom? What dies? Marriages die. Dreams die. God's purposes that He wants you to accomplish in this world die. Churches die because of sin in the flock. There is always a legacy to our disobedience. Right now, just take a minute and ask yourself, which trajectory are you on? All right, that's the dark side. We're seeing Jonah at his end. Now next week, Paul is going to take us into chapter 2, and we see this hope-filled, grace-filled path back to God. And I don't want to steal from his thunder. We met this week and talked about it. It's going to be really a great sermon. I want you to come back for that. So rather than get there now, I just want you to look at God's interaction with Jonah during his sinful spiral to the bottom. Where is God in the midst of all this? And this is an excellent little study to help us understand how free will and the sovereignty of God work together. Because you see Jonah exercising his will. And one of the principles that I'd like to suggest is true about our free will is that most often (laughs) our free will gets us into trouble. Because we are not independent agents. I love America. I love freedom. I'm glad I live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm really glad about that. But that doesn't translate into my spiritual life. I'm not an independent agent in the kingdom of God. He's in charge. And the way I exercise my will as God's child is to do what He wants. (laughs) I follow His lead. I embrace His authority in my life. When we use our free will to just do whatever we want, 
that gets us in trouble. It gets all of us in trouble. And that's what we see with Jonah. But yet we see the sovereign hand of God at work at the same time. So here's three ways we see God at work, even as Jonah is exercising his will and spiraling down to rock bottom. First, he lets us experience the result of our wrong choices. He lets you have that. You know why? Because that's what you want. I want to make my choices. If I succeed, I'd like some credit for that. But if you're going to have that, then you also get to take credit when it goes bad. (laughs) You can't say, look at what I did. I'm a self-made human being when things go well. And when things go bad because of your decision, say, God, what did you do? We do that all the time. Living our lives and then things don't go well and we turn to God and say, God, fix this. But we only want Him to fix it. We don't want to change our trajectory. So you say, where's my free will? That's it. God, let you exercise your free will and let you experience the impact of those decisions. Second thing God does, even while that's happening, He works in our circumstances to bring us to our senses. Look at how he does that with Jonah. He's letting Jonah do what he wants, but all the while, he's sovereignly working. Jonah flees, gets on a ship. God says, all right, I'll work with this. He brings a storm. Jonah's finally cast over. God says, well, pretty disastrous day for Jonah, but I can work with that. He sends a fish. You see, God works even while we're experiencing the result of our decisions to bring us to our senses. And for some of us, it doesn't get in until we've got seaweed wrapped around our heads. But God will stay in it with you as His child. And He'll be ready when you come to your senses. And that's the third point. When we hit bottom, He's there waiting. Praise God for that. He's there waiting. In Jonah's case, he's waiting with something he prepared for that moment to swallow Jonah and to save his life. God's there at the end. And here's one of the amazing things that we learn about how far we run from God. It may create distance in terms of our relationship with Him, but you can never outrun God. You can't go anywhere and find that God is not there. Turn with me to the 139th Psalm. A Psalm of David who did his fair share of running from God. We're going to read it in its entirety. I want you to listen to David's honest wrestling with this reality that he's come to. That no matter where he goes, no matter how far he runs, no matter how dark the circumstances, he's never away from God. And in this psalm, you see both frustration about that fact, (laughs) that God's there when He doesn't want Him, but then you see resignation about God's presence, and ultimately, you see rejoicing about God's presence. Verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me, and You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before me. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I, I, I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak to you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. But search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's such a powerful poem. It's so honest. David is awestruck by the wonder of God's constant presence and yet he's frustrated by it. He confesses there's times he'd love just to get away from it, hide in the dark places of his heart and of his passions and his lusts. And God knows he did his share of hiding. And then at the end, when he understands that this God who chases him down, who is at work in spite of our stubbornness, and who was there when we finally reached the end of our disastrous decision, that God is a God who has only love for him. Think about what he says. Think about how much he understands your inmost thoughts. You know what? When I think about other people being aware of some of the darkness that's in here, and I know I'm no different than you. When I think of other people knowing that, I'm ashamed. But here's the reality that David comes to terms with. As dark as it is, God knows it. And his thoughts for you are still wonderful. His thoughts for you are still love. And it's why in the end, David is able to say, okay, I give up. Search me. Know my heart. And reveal it to me so that I can find the path everlasting. That's the path we're going to see Jonah get back to 
next week. And it's a path you could get back on right now. So let's pray together. Here's what I want to ask you as you're in prayer. I want to ask you what trajectory you're on. Are you pursuing God or are you pursuing your own priorities? What disobedience is prevalent in your spirit? It could be a bitterness, a hatred, as David confesses, a hatred towards people that have hurt you that you won't let go of. It could be the very thing I talked about before. You could be addicted to some sexual sin. You could be right now having an affair or very close to one, about to step over the line. You could be stealing. We're just human beings, and I'm not saying any of that to browbeat you. All I'm saying to you is whatever it is, God knows it already. And here's what's amazing. His thoughts for you are only about grace and love. He knows it, so surrender to that fact and open up yourself to him and say, Lord, search me, know my heart, reveal to me, forgive me. Start me on a fresh path back to you. If you have something that you want to walk away from right now and find your way back to God and his grace, I'm just going to allow you to raise your hand right now so I can pray for you. Anybody? Thank you. Good. Great. Any number of us here would love to pray with you if you'd like that. There's nothing that you could share that we haven't struggled with and can't walk you through. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how even when we are making the most miserable decisions in our life, and we think we're running and running far from you. We reach the end of those decisions, and there you are, waiting for us to come to our senses and to find grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that in Jesus we have love, grace, and forgiveness, and we have newness of life. All God's people said, 